0: Welcome everybody. And thank you for tuning in to the official podcast of the Wisdom Factory Literary Society. Here we are committed to the practical application of knowledge so that we may develop ourselves to our true potential. Along with individual improvement, we seek to unite knowledge with action for the betterment of mankind. In order to accomplish our task, we facilitate dialogue and debate through literature and media but most importantly through lively conversations amongst individuals like you who are brilliant, experienced, and who maintain the ability to exercise sound judgment. Join us as we discuss the structure of the world liberal order as it stands today, and we will look at what about it is worth preserving. Then we will assess the current challenges from alternative and revisionist world actors. In this episode, President Jordan will also provide policy options that can give us more leverage in maintaining the proper balance of power in which world security is reinforced so that peace can be enjoyed by all nations and the rights of the people of the world can be protected. Enjoy. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another installment of the Wisdom Factory Podcast. Mm -hmm. Uh, My name is Jordan and I'm again with Preston and today we are going to be talking about the uh, Western liberal order and the challenges to uh, that order um, particularly by Russia and China but we'll also bring in uh, viewpoints from other nations and other actors as well
1: and also also discussing the role of certain non-state actors that's something that was brought up because what inspired the, the topic for this podcast was an event um, by the title of Challenges to the Western Liberal Order that the Wisdom Factory attended at St. Edward's University um, they had a lot of brilliant speakers from all around the world, mm-hmm. and they discussed a lot of really important issues when we're considering the future, you know, not only of the United States, but of the world and of, you know, yeah, this, these, this liberal international system that we live
0: in. They did a very good job of getting representations of the various viewpoints that are critical to understanding this issue. We had Russian uh, panelists, we had uh, Montenegro, which is a Balkan country analyst, a, a NATO or a potential NATO member. We even had the NATO vice president president um, on, on on the uh, web, webcast and then there was you know an American guy um, there was a guy from the air Force and then there was we cannot forget the Chinese uh, representation there yes. and all of these guys had some very interesting things to add to this um, this problem of, of Western liberal order and particularly when I look at this, obviously I do it from a point of view as an American. Yes. You know, I do this, you know, I'm an American, I'm patriotic, I love this country, I want this country to succeed. And if we're going to succeed, a huge part in our safety and security and prosperity, uh, and our ability to maintain freedom is
1: maintaining this world
0: order. Mm-hmm. So- Yeah, uh, because
1: the United States really, our security has benefited a lot. And I think, I think one of the panelists had actually mentioned that, there's sort of a give and take relationship that e- even right. though the world as a whole has benefited from liberal internationalism, that that's something, oh, excuse me, that even from an American perspective has been very important, because the fact that we've developed a network of institutions to help manage conflicts peacefully, the fact that we've built alliances with countries, sometimes countries that we used to be enemies with, mm-hmm. that has really increased the number of friends and decreased the number of enemies we have, and has helped made it easier to keep an orderly system where we you know we don't have to worry about. As much in terms of violent confrontation or, or great power challenge as we might otherwise. Uh, that being said, you know this this order is definitely in more danger than it's been in a long time. That you know right. we're we're seeing a lot of changes that potentially you know that that potentially could be the undoing of
0: this. Well, before we talk about the challenges to it, I think it's it's uh, important for us to establish a sort of baseline about yeah. why should we preserve the, the liberal order? Mm-hmm. Why is it important? How does this benefit uh, us? How does this benefit the world? Um, and, and why is it so important for us to understand how the liberal order works and how it is evolving? And I think the first thing that we need to understand is number one, it preserves our security. So if you're an American at home sitting in your seat, you feel like there is no threat to you from any other country. Mexico is not gonna attack us. Uh, right now, we, you know the, the threat from Russia is, is very minimal. Uh, it's as low as it's been you know, relatively uh, since the Cold War. Uh, well, I wouldn't say but, it's as
1: low as it's well, been, but it's not as bad I, as it was during
0: the Yeah, period. I mean, you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, like, since 1991, it's, it's, it's ratcheted up. But if yeah. you look at it over the last, like, 50 years, it's, it's, not, it's not what it was at all. Uh, and then China, uh, you know, you say what you will, but I guarantee you they're not going to strike us within the week. You know, like, we feel relatively safe yeah. in where we are um, from major power wars. Mm-hmm. Uh, and th- that is in large part due b- to our extensive military... Um, uh, footprint across the globe uh, and so this liberal order survives because the United States is able to put their military and and put bases uh, and move forward um, in these different areas in Asia and in, in Europe in Africa in Australia, and Australia and all around the globe to uh, sort of act as a, a check on the aggressive actions of other powers and even in the case of if a hostility broke out we already have We're in position to attack on their soil and not on our soil. And I think that is very important. Why? Because if you look at war in general, it's very ugly. People are getting killed. People are getting raped. People are getting – their properties are getting destroyed. They're not able to eat. And so we don't realize it because we've been in peace for so long. But that – value cannot be overstated enough that it's important and, and essential thing, to
1: maintain our security and this liberal order
0: does that. One thing I was
1: going to say is you talk about like peace and security and uh, you know I'm American too like I, I totally agree with that. But I think another thing, because a lot of the criticism that is directed towards the liberal international order comes from a global perspective, and I think it's important that we also look at how United States hegemony has benefited the globe. Because you know, we mm. say what you will, like people call the United States imperialist and this yeah. and that. Um, and as we'll probably get to later in this conversation, they're not always wrong. That there are right. you know definitely things that the West and the United States has done that have been bad for the world and have been unfair for other countries. But when you look at things by and large, the United States has uh, served as a very important security guarantor that essentially, the fact that we have these bases and that we're, you know, for the most part, you know, kind of refer to what I say, said before about the exceptions, but mm-hmm. for the most part we follow international law and that essentially it creates an incentive for countries to be peaceful because they know that if something happens, the United States has security guarantor. And the thing is, if you're sitting there in a position where you've got to fend for yourself, it's very tempting to want to develop nuclear weapons, to build up yeah. your military, you know, yeah. to attack first, to do all these other things because you know that your enemy so, might be trying to plan that. Whereas, with the United States, a security guarantor yeah. that you have, states that are able to be peaceful without risking their survival because they know that if somebody attacks them, the United States has got their back. You
0: cannot stress that. It's a very good point, Preston, because if you look at a specific case like in Europe, Europe does not have to spend uh, a huge percent of their GDP on military like like, like, like we do, because we protect them. So what do they do with those savings? They invest it in their infrastructure, they invest it in their social programs, and people are able to benefit in so many ways, but the United States benefits because uh, with the increase in their uh, in their markets, you know, and the stability of their financial systems, they can then buy American products, and we can, uh, you know, purchase uh, some very high-tech and well-developed products from you know from Europe, like yeah. Germany. Uh, and they're only able to do that because of the situation that they're in, like you said. Because it, yeah, because yeah. the, the trade is
1: so. a major part because when we look at our our standard of living you know, we export a lot to Europe. A lot Mm -hmm. of the job opportunities and stuff that are created here as a result of that. But on the flip side too, you know, we also benefit from the import side because, Mm -hmm. you know, German products, like you mentioned German products, German products are some of the best made in the world in a lot of cases. And that, you know, the the ability to access their markets, you know, the ability to sell them our goods and to buy their goods, you know, really has, has boosted the United States economy in a lot of ways. If you think we're lying, all you
0: have to do is take a look at what Europe was in before World War II, you know, where you would see great, uh, great stride, France was... If you would have seen France before the Nazi invasion, they were their economy was increasing, their military was increasing, their society was increasing, their intellectual capacity, their patents, all of that stuff was increasing, but then what happened? Because of the instability and a security guarantor, uh, the Germans came in and obliterated all of that and then yeah. we came in and we obliterated all of Germany's uh, industrial capacity so you know when you have a system where people are relatively safe they're just allowed to develop and they're allowed to increase now that's so we talked about security and we talked about economic uh, economic uh
1: we can also maybe, maybe, maybe mention the political aspect real quick because I, I think that um, and I, I, I would say that self-determination is definitely something that has improved um, under the liberal order but um, I'm going to kind of have, have a little bit of a caveat to this. I would definitely say, I think self-determination, right. whether it has improved or, been, or, or or gotten worse, because yeah. um, I, I believe that it's improved, that's because of some of my views. Uh, uh, but yeah. it depends on whether you emphasize individual or collective, because the United States has really spread a lot of ideas around the world that have helped individuals and certain marginalized and oppressed groups within countries be able to have rights. But at the same time, we do have a tendency to assume that every country must have democracy and that if you view self-determination as a collective right rather than an individual one the western liberal order has actually been somewhat
0: tyrannical. So when you're talking about self-determination, that is very important. We as Americans, we we are the main champions of self-determination because that's how we started. We started as a bunch of farmers and aristocrats who came together and determined that they didn't want to live with a king telling them what to do all the time or a parliament telling them what they wanted to do. They wanted to come together as a society and decide what was best for the common good. And that's what is essential, and that is our ideal, and that is what we try to promote in the the liberal order. But that can only happen, and that can only exist when there are free and fair elections. And that brings us into the uh, the the component to the challenges of this question yes. order that come from uh... actors such as russia and uh... and and maybe china to a smaller extent with taiwan
1: but uh... Well, I, so I would, you have yeah I, I'm, I'm gonna um, chime in just for a sec, um, and this, you know, if we have a little bit of debate in here, that's fine. Because okay. But I would definitely say that China is the number one challenger. And, and the well, what, I, what
0: I mean is like by elections. So when I let me give an example of okay. like Crimea, how how you would say you would look at the situation in Crimea, and you would say, you know what, they voted, they self-determined, they wanted to be a part of Russia. Yeah. But is that really what the Crimean people felt? Were those really free and fair elections? Were the elections that were held in Libya were those, you know, a result of Libyan? people deciding what they want for themselves uh, with the absence of foreign influence. That's, what is, that's the essence of what we're trying to do, and when that doesn't happen, whether it's from the United States side or whether it's Russia pushing that to happen, then that's, we see self-determination
1: uh, not being realized. I, here's, here's what I would, I would say is that I think that when it comes to manipulating elections, yeah. both countries are dangerous but in very different ways, Very like, drastically different ways. Obviously the goal in both instances is political, but I think that Russia has a very direct way of accomplishing political goals, whereas China has an indirect way. And and Mm. here, let me explain. So basically what Russia does is that when Russia decides that they need to manipulate an election to advance their national interests, whether it be, and and obviously there's controversy as to whether this happened, We're just allegedly, but just for argument's sake we can assume, we can debate whether or not it actually happened later. But like when it comes to, you know, the election of Crimea or when it comes to the election of Donald Trump in 2016, you know, these, these instances where, where allegedly Russia interfered with an elections where there's proof of it happening to a certain extent, that, they, you know, they did it directly, that Russia actually wants to manipulate how people think, how the votes are counted, etc. Whereas China, China does something very different. That, I guess, in some ways is more effective, in some ways is less effective. It really just depends how you look at it. China goes through the economic route first. That, so they do this both with the United States and with a slew of developing countries. So with the United States, China is effectively able to project their preferences policy-wise in Washington via multinational corporations because what happens is that in order to trade with China in order to have access to the Chinese market a lot of times multinationals have to partner with a Chinese state-owned company and what that does is their profits become tied to the success of China's state planned capitalist model and that therefore when they're going and lobbying in Washington whether they realize it or not, they're advocating on behalf of China because they, they don't want their relationship with China to be hurt even if that would be best for the national interest overall because their profit. Something that's different um, in some ways but similar in others occurs with a lot of third world countries or or, or should I say developing or underdeveloped countries in Africa where China goes and that they invest and they build a bunch of infrastructure but they own it and it's Chinese people working on it and it's only useful for Chinese purposes and that they effectively are able to strip the country of its sovereignty in all but name. Um, Now before I wrap up, you know, because I know know I've been going for a little bit, but But before I wrap up, the yeah. thing is, I think there's, you know, overall, if we're looking specifically at the political approach, uh, I, I think it's a matter of perception in terms of which is more dangerous, because there's pros and cons to each one. That, that China's, China's is easier, or is more difficult, rather, to catch, because mm-hmm. this is less direct, and since it can do it under the guise of trade and investment, it's very easy to China for China to escape blame. But when you have that indirect method, if you're not going directly to the political aspect, right. you can still have dissent, whereas Russia... Russia, as has been demonstrated with the two thousand sixteen, when you do it directly, when yeah, you're interfering with the election itself, you can get caught. But if you do it successfully, you basically have the government in your pocket right away. Yeah.
0: So I mean to me I, I I would just see the direct influence of, of self-determination as more uh, effective if you're on the Russian side. So that's more dangerous I would say because it, it they're completely skewing the results of the election. Whereas China is trying to influence somebody who has influence on the election, it's a little bit more. They have to go through a lot of channels, yeah. and there can always be that counter influence from other business business members. It just gets complicated well, when, it also, when, it when also they're depends. trying to when they're trying yeah. to lobby, Preston. But you have to see the difference mm-hmm. of Russian troops being there to they're there at the polls. Okay, yeah. so when we're talking about self-determination, we're specifically talking about the voting process. And you know, right up until these votes are are counted, you have the Russians there at every step of the process. I think that's a level, for, that's a level ahead of, of economic uh, interference. But that's not to say that economic interference is more widespread. Yeah. So it's less concentrated. So in that way, in the aggregate, it can be a lot more dangerous because it can affect a lot more countries, like you said, Africa yeah. and the United States. And, and I but think, I think it's, yeah. it takes it's a little bit slower and it's a little bit uncertainty to it because you know. How much did their economic pressures work when Trump got elected? Who wants to slash all the economic ties with china so mm-hmm. you so you, you look at that and what were the results of their uh interference in that situation, and it was very, very bad. In fact, it was the opposite of what they would want to happen.
1: And, and, I, and I think, too, because so, Ch- we're not just talking about presidential elections. That, you know, China obviously has a lot of congressmen in their pockets, and I think that which is more dangerous because I think we need, we need to be careful of one-size-fits-all solutions when we're talking about which is more dangerous because I, like, I feel like that it depends on the election system of the country. Uh I feel like to the United States, China is a lot more dangerous because we have such an open election system that allows so much money, corporate money, that basically the United States, Senate, House, seats, even presidencies are basically for sale when all is said and done. Whereas in Europe, you hear a lot more about what Russia is doing. And the reason for that is because when you're dealing with a situation where the political system is more heavily regulated and that it's more difficult for big money to influence things, then you really have to – directly influence the political aspect to be able to achieve anything, and that Chinese companies have not had the same amount of success in shaping Europe's policy as they have in the United States, because Europe has more checks and balances to prevent, you know, wealthy interests from being able to buy the election for themselves.
0: Okay, Preston, and on that note, um, so when we went to this meeting right here, and we sat, I think it was two hours, two hour, 30 minutes, uh, we went through all of this. Uh, we got all these viewpoints. We had the Chinese viewpoint, the American viewpoint, the European viewpoint, uh, the U.S. military viewpoint, the Chinese viewpoint. What were some takeaways that you got from this, um, from this
1: discussion and this forum? Well, my biggest takeaway was this. What we're seeing is a, the, the West brought the demise of the Western liberal order as it's currently playing out on itself. Um, now, initially, that, but that might seem kind of a strange conclusion to make, um, but like especially when you consider the fact that we like in the South China Sea, that China's aggression has been unilateral. Um, but why do I say it's unilateral? Well, the reason I say it's unilateral is because the West actually has been very favorable towards China when it comes mm-hmm. to trade, that we've essentially given them everything that they wanted in trying to appease them, and yet they're still aggressive. The problem is that the West has done things. That have directly contributed to the rise of a lot of challengers. So, China's the first example that their rise to superpower status is a result of us accepting very one sided trade deals in China's favor that have allowed them to strip the West of its industry, to to finance their war machine with these huge trade surpluses, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, With Russia, it's something that's sort of opposite in cause, but the same in effect that Russia, that the United States and its Western allies have oftentimes antagonized and bullied Russia. Um, and that that has caused you know, the rise of nationalism within Russia you know, that, that you, you have a lot of people who because Russia, it's not the same situation as China that China, we basically gave them everything they wanted Russia, we when Russia wants to negotiate, we want to fight essentially right. is what happens and that basically, because of that between our antagonization of Russia and our promotion of the growth of China that the two state actors that are the greatest threat to the western liberal order their status as a challenge is a direct result of Western politics. if if the West had been more because willing there, to negotiate it, with Russia, yeah. if the West had either demanded fair trade with China or not traded at all, then I, I doubt I highly doubt that either of those countries would yeah. even if there was obviously there was going to be disagreements. But I think that if there had been different choices, I doubt either of those countries would be fundamentally reshaping the order that we have. Yeah, right now. and that's and that's
0: a very good point, Preston. which you you're bringing up is that this Western liberal order is very uh it's very fragile. You know, it can be, and the actions that the United States does. Uh, directly influences how strong that order is or how weak that order is. And so that brings up something that they talked about, which were internal uh, challenges and external challenges. And what you just talked about were the external challenges. And the United States itself is shooting itself in the foot by, give, by allowing China to these unfair economic advantages. And yes. so they're growing and growing and growing. And then they're able to challenge the, the liberal order in a very compelling way. And then Russia by feeding them mm-hmm. a nationalist uh, idea and also internally with the United States, we are voting for anti-immigration policies, isolationist policies and with Donald Trump who wants to withdraw and seal the United States away from being engaged in this order and I think that internal uh, political climate is also very dangerous because it sends a message to the rest of the world that you guys have to figure it out on your own. The America, America is not going to participate in this uh, globalized order because we have, to carry, uh, we have to worry about our own interests. And when you do that, other countries are going to do the same. And just as we were the creators of this order and we have been the preservers of this order, we can be the, end, the enders of this order if we do not stay committed to helping our allies, to making sure that the rule of law is, is, is put forth uh, by leading the um, sort of conscious of the world saying that you know what we accept immigrants we're not going to close our borders uh, yes. it's the it's the the populism that is uh, in the internal politics is also contributing to a, a huge challenge in, in the in the. In but the, uh, I, I,
1: I think that that's that's a sign of something a lot broader because like you know right now we're talking about practical and political shifts and I, and I think that's good yeah. because those are very very important aspects um, if not the most important aspects of what we're dealing with. but I, I think there's another dimension to it that we also need to touch upon uh, and that's the ideological aspect, because when we're looking at political ideologies around the world that for the past, you know, half century or so, maybe a little more. I'd say probably more than that, since World War II, mm-hmm. since World War II, a liberal democracy has been the dominant political system within the world. And that, that countries, by and large, would be moving or, or were moving towards the system where, where, where you know, Equal representation was a pillar, you know. Like you had said that you know that making decisions based on the common good rather than just what is good for one group or another. Um, but what we're seeing is that there's a shift away from that, both in terms of foreign relations and within domestic policies. In terms of foreign relations, the, you know the rise of China and Russia definitely show that there's, the countries controlled by these ideologies are becoming more influential, but. When you look at the internal politics, there's a lot of authoritarianism that's basically the West in some ways is starting to parallel that. Mm -hmm. Like you think about, you know, what you mentioned with the immigrants, that's entirely valid, um, but it's only the tip of the iceberg because there's a lot of other things that have happened that have followed some of the same authoritarian ideology as the anti-immigrant policies. You know, you look at limitations on freedom of speech in in places like France and the UK. You look at at, at gun control that's happened throughout Europe and that a lot of people are pushing for now in the United States you look at mass surveillance, you know, and yeah. at the infringement of individual liberties there. This seems like, you know, silencing, disarming, spying on the populace Um, has become something that the West is willing to engage in, and that there's, from an ideological perspective, not only are we suffering from the increased influence of hostile countries that are authoritarian, but we ourselves are sort of collapsing, Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with fear, that because of things like terrorism and stuff like that, the people are so afraid that they want to give all this power to the government because they feel like the government can protect them, Um, when in reality, you know, the liberal... Order is something that's challenged, and that if, if we truly do value it, is it, we definitely need to be concerned about these authoritarian policies. You know, when we see censorship, when we see gun control, when we see anti-immigrant policies, it's definitely something that puts yeah. uh, the system at risk.
0: Yeah, especially when you see like pulling out of the climas, climate climate Paris Climate Accord. That's just you know whether you're for uh, climate change or, or against it, or you don't think that we can do anything about it. That was a. a, a, a us engaging in a multilateral agreement with a bunch of other countries. And that sort of cooperation is what traditionally preserves the, the liberal order, that we're involved in all. And, and when the world does something, we're, we're involved and we're leading. So whenever we're uh, like, it's, it's like how Trump came. That was one of the things he did. He also pulled out the TPP. So like we said, uh, free trade agreements are one of the uh, pillars of this system. Now, recently, we have seen the negative effects of it. And obviously, I agree personally that these free trade agreements should be modified so that the United States isn't getting such a bad end of the deal. Uh, they should be fair free trade, not unfair free trade. I think there's a difference there. Um, but when you pull out of those, you know, you are sending a message to the world that, like, like I said, like America first, closing the borders. Um, and so there's just a, a vast array of policies that happen when you have an isolationist president um, that can affect the liberal order in the in, in the short and medium long term. And I, I would say and
1: that when it comes to trade, if in terms of preserving the order that we have, there's really two types of trade that are good, mm-hmm. um, and there's two types of trade that are bad. Uh, so let's let's actually let's start with the bad first. Let's let's us end on a good note. We'll start pessimistic and then get get good. The I think the two types of economic policies that lead that will that can and possibly will lead to the demise of the liberal order are isolationism mm-hmm. and unfair trade. That basically, that if you only have one-sided trade barriers, that undermines the interconnectedness between countries. It allows mercantilism, and it you know, causes certain countries to have advantages. And then it just becomes a realist power struggle between different countries economically. Whereas if you have isolationism, then you lose interconnectedness entirely, and you lose global leadership. But I the two types of trade that are good are... Free trade and fair trade. And that they, in, in a lot of ways they're similar because they're both based on reciprocity. That I see fair trade there can be barriers, but they're equal on both sides. That right. you know, if I put a twenty five percent tariff on you, you put a twenty five percent tariff on me, that kind of thing. And then fair trade is also reciprocity, but it doesn't believe in tariffs. That free free trade is this idea it's like, okay, we're both we're mutually gonna lower our barriers. You know, so I definitely think that things like NAFTA are good. Yeah. But things like trade with China are bad, and the reason why it doesn't have to do with the trade necessarily intrinsically as it has to do with the way they're conducting it. That NAFTA is a deal that represents that reciprocity, where more or less all countries involved have to follow the same rules, and that tariffs by and large have been eliminated from trade between the United States, Canada, and Mexico, whereas China China has been allowed To engage in mercantilist trade policies Um, and I think another threat is represented by Trump because even though I do think that Trump has made the right move with China and putting tariffs on them Mm -hmm. him putting tariffs on everyone else I think that he's moving towards that other danger the isolationist aspect that I think is just as dangerous in a lot of ways as allowing China's mercantilism yeah so you know what we're talking about
0: the United States shooting itself in the foot here our foreign policy or our our policy in general towards the world and trade in, in military aspects and political aspects is very, very important. Now, the last thing I want to say before we, we move on to this next, uh, this next topic is that I want to give Trump some credit because in order to maintain the global uh, the, the liberal order, you have to have a strong security. You have to have strong security, and he has increased the military budget yes. uh, by most than I think any recent president in history. I think it's up to seven hundred fifteen billion. It might go up to eight eight hundred billion Well, whether soon. whether more and, and more spending, that, but, but I think good that thing thing that's that's, some, that's something. Well, Trump that he's made it yeah. uh, one of the Priorities of his platform is to increase the military. And when he's increasing the military, he's increasing that, is going to offseas. And that's going to engagement in preserving the world order. That's more hard power, which yeah. is something we're going to talk about later, as hard power is one of the most important things that you can have in preserving the world order. So he is doing that, and we're objective at the wisdom factor. It doesn't matter what your politics are. Yeah. We look at the policies, and if those policies are, are giving the results that we think are critical and, and, and benevolent, then we're going to accept them, and we're going to give credit to them. And I'm just, but before, the next,
1: Before we move on, we're going to go just on a real brief tangent about that, because okay. you know, I think that's a really important point to mention, especially when it comes to Trump, knowing how Controversial Trump, um, Trump is. Yeah. And, uh, hold on, just one second. Um, so yeah, because so Trump... like, the thing is, is that you know, Trump. It seems like a lot of people just either love him or hate him. They have this idea that either everything Trump does is good or everything Trump does is bad. And then, like me, I'm not a big fan of Trump. Like I generally, I generally, like by and large, on an aggregate scale, think that Trump has been a pretty bad president. But. That doesn't mean that there's not certain things he's done that I like. Right, and I mentioned right. the tariffs on China as an example mm-hmm. of this, That I think that every now and then, and also the direct negotiations with North Korea, you know, mm-hmm. circumventing China, that, that Trump definitely has, some made good, has made some good decisions throughout the course of his presidency even if those good decisions have not been the norm, and that it, you know, being objective is very important. Okay, so I
0: think that wraps up our discussion here on what the United States is doing wrong, uh, and we had some things that they're doing right. But So I want to bring that discussion because, like you said, we want to do here, we want to get takeaways from the discussion last night, and we also want to come up with solutions. So what sort of things, Preston, do you think that the United States should be doing? Put on your your foreign policy hat here and sort of try to come up with ways and policies that we should be pursuing that allows us to preserve the Western liberal order and allows us to... uh, even have more benefits in all the areas that we were talking about earlier
1: well I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna talk about to. two things because I, I have I have sort of two answers they're the same answer but I, I think that the way I'm explaining it is going to be different because I have, a, I have a general answer and I have a specific answer I think from a general perspective we need a new doctrine but from a specific perspective there's like certain individual things that we need to do I'm gonna start from a general so I would propose that the United States needs to Adopt a new foreign policy doctrine that I would call realist internationalism, and that sounds strange because normally those things. But but, but here's the thing: when we're preserving the real li- the liberal order, liberal is a broad term, and liberal order doesn't necessarily necessarily doesn't necessarily mean the same thing as liberal internationalism. That liberal internationalism is one foreign policy doctrine, you know. And, and I think what the United States needs to do because the reason why I say we need to have sort of so I'll, I'll explain what it is. Essentially, realist internationalism would be that we seek to maintain the world order in a way that suits our interests, mm-hmm. and that we don't want to pursue our interests at the expense of the world order, but at the same time we want to maneuver within it in a way mm-hmm. that gives us more power. Um, so, and the reason why I say that needs to happen is because there's, there's two kind of problems that we're facing that on face value seem kind of contradictory and are very difficult to solve with existing methods. Um, the first is that the United States is losing power. So you know, in that sense, that we want to increase our power in order to, to respond to those threats. But on the other hand, I think that our legitimacy is being undermined by our hypocrisy. The fact that we are invading countries left and right, but Russia invades someone and there's a problem, and that we put all these sanctions on them. Um, so I definitely think that the United States, we, we, we need to, and I'm going to get more into the specific aspect here, We need to pursue a foreign policy doctrine that prioritizes American interests and seeks to improve our own power vis-a-vis other nations, but at the same time maintains reciprocity. So, some of the specific things I have to talk about first, we definitely want to invest more at home in economic growth. and we want to make sure that our military spending is more efficient because, you know, that, that's like a topic for a whole other podcast. Our military spending, we spend, we spend more, right. but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're always getting more capability, that we, the United States military wastes a lot of money because of defense contractors, influence, et cetera. Um, and that we definitely want to make sure that we're preparing ourselves, our economic power, our military power, our hard power, to respond to, to these threats. And we want to make sure that we remain the top dog. At the same time, part of that is maintaining reciprocity, and this is where there's going to be some give and take. We want to have reciprocity when it comes to trade relations because that's going to be what allows us to do that. That Right now, the United States economy is effectively being pillaged by that of China, and that having having these tariffs and trying to use that as leverage to negotiate them to a free trade agreement Mm -hmm. or to maybe an agreement where we have equal tariffs is a good way to give the United States more of a competitive advantage to be able to do that. Um, On the flip side, we are going to have to make some certain sacrifices because I think that the United States, we need to chill out with the interventionism. Or if we don't, we need to stop throwing a fit when other countries intervene. And that the reason for that is because we have to have that legitimacy. That I think that the United States, we want to be the most powerful, but we don't want to be perceived as hypocritical. That I think hard power and soft power are both equally important important here. That we cannot sacrifice too much of one Uh, to get the other so that's why you say realist internationalism that essentially that we're we're viewing this as a power-based competition that we're recognizing the fact that for this order to survive the United States has to remain the dominant country we have to prevent other countries from becoming more powerful than us but at the same time we need to make sure that we're not doing that in a way that's hypocritical that we want to make sure that countries are sort of content to be Subject to a US-led world order and that you know while they might not get their way all the time because the United States is stronger and you know we may make them do stuff every now and then that they're not being treated unfairly That they're not in a situation where we can get away with all this crazy stuff like invading other countries for, for no good reason mm-hmm. Whereas you know Vladimir Putin decides that he needs to use the bathroom and then there's some new sanctions as a result of that Exactly exactly yeah, so
0: what Preston just gave you right there is a very good um alternative to our current theoretical approach to the world in, in, in the global liberal order. Uh, what I want to do is sort of give you some uh, some practical things that the United States could do today that we should do, that we must do in order to... Uh, secure the world order for our benefit. And the first thing that I would do is ha- we have to get rid of some of, the, some of these actors who are challenging the, the, the liberal order and uh, bringing chaos into our order. And the first thing that we need to do is we need to get rid of these terrorist organizations. And we need to get rid of, uh, of like, uh, um, entities like Boko Haram. Basically, I call them barbarians. So these, these organized criminal gangs uh, whether it's – you know it, it, could, it could even be the Mexican cartels. They're disrupting the liberal order because they're creating uh, uh, um, chaos and military tension, uh, which once they do that and they create that climate, then you have the United States coming in and having to intervene, and then Russia intervenes, and there's a proxy war. So in order to get rid of all that and, and, and stabilize all of that instability, you have to try to find a way to get rid of ISIS, to get rid of al-Qaeda, to get rid of Hezbollah, to get rid of these um, – these non-major power entities and do the best that you can. And you might be saying, Jordan, that sounds virtually impossible to do. But I think that you have two options here, and that's to uh, reverse and accept that we cannot do that or you have some resolve and you and you and you commit to it and you uh, invest in trying to do that. Um, And one of the ways that you can do that leads into my next thing, and that is we need to cultivate more allies. So one of the best yes. ways that we're going to preserve our Western liberal order is to have those uh, those countries and those nations who are on the fence about what side do they believe in. What future of the liberal order do they subscribe to? Is it the Chinese version, the Russian version, or the American version? I think that we need to make sure that they're uh, – they're, subscribing to the American version and we can do that in a lot of ways and there's a lot of regions that we need to be doing this in. Latin America, there's a lot of Chinese influence that yes, we need to be counteracting. Yes. Uh, Africa, there's a lot of uh, you know, Chinese influence again that they're, that they're, that they're uh, trying to get these countries to subscribe to a Chinese uh, liberal order and the more countries you have the more votes you have at the UN, the more uh, proponents you have of your vision, and the easier it is going to be able for a, either a pro or anti-liberal order proponent to be able to force their vision on the world and make it a reality and accept it in the world conscious. And I think that it's also important in the Balkan areas where you have Russian influence. So in all of these areas, the United States isn't doing enough right now and I feel like they need to do more. There needs to be a focused policy on uh, getting allies. One of the speakers that that we saw last night was a perfect example of this and he was from Montenegro, which is a country that is heavily influenced by Russians. Yes. Uh, Russians are in there. They share the same eth- uh They're both Slavs. They're both Orthodox Christians, and Russia is trying to bring them into their sphere of influence. But because of our you know, liberal policies, our economic policies, and because they generally view us as a benevolent power and an upholder of truth and justice, they want to become a part of the EU. They want to become mm-hmm. a part of the NATO. There are a lot of members who want to become a part of our organized institutions, but we don't allow them. For various reasons. I think we need to overcome that and bring in all these allies and create a, 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 a bigger uh, a union of nations who share our viewpoints. And in order to do that, I want to bring in number three, and that is we need to develop the world. So in, in many of these similar areas, but also in areas that don't even subscribe to any order because they simply, they're just worried about their food and their survival. I think that we need to continue. If we looked at this liberal order, the best way that it came to be what it was today is because of the economic growth and stability that that brought and, and opportunities that that brought to the American market. Yeah. So we need to go back to that original formula and we need to give out loans, we need to give out development assistance to countries that need it. There's a lot of countries in Latin America that can be transformed overnight if they just had the proper investments, the foreign investments to do that. Well and that's, that's and, one of the
1: few ways that you can actually create some mutually beneficial things because mm-hmm. I feel like the problem is that, you know, and I'm going to go out on a limb because I know that a lot of a lot of Western economists would disagree with me, but at the same time I feel like a lot of Western economists and their doctrine have been part of the the problem, you right. know, and, and with this. But I would say that by and large, especially between great powers, a lot of times economic relations are sort of zero sum in the sense that there's always going to be a country that that benefits more than the other. There are exceptions, I think, when both sides eliminate tariffs equally, that can be one of them. But I think another is what we're talking about with these loans to developing countries. So mm-hmm. essentially that, We'll be making money off the interest. We'll be getting exactly. money back on we're our investment. We're making money off but, of like, it's, it's like, yeah if it People but, get the wrong but, idea and but, think we're losing money. Right? But the thing is, the thing is, though, is that they're gaining yeah. too because we spur the. Cause so basically, that that's one of the situations where it's actually win-win. Yeah. Because that the United States is able to profit off of human development. That we're in a situation where the richer they get, the richer mm-hmm. we get. Because you know that their economy will grow. It'll, you know, and then, then they can start buying our products. And I think as long as we can... I feel like the problem with the current development economics model is it prevents it from being mutually beneficial because we always give these one-sided yeah, trade benefits much, to developing yeah. countries. What I think needs to happen, there's that reciprocity because what that does is that it sustains our ability to continue helping them, but it's also something that gives the common people their yeah. opportunity because if they can buy goods from us, if we yeah. can make it cheaper, that, that the problem is that a lot of countries will protect their own industry it, and that it'll increase the cost for their when I,
0: when I say develop the world, person, a lot of times it's simply, like we said, you have to establish a stability in the society and once you establish stability, then economic growth always follows. So that's one of the things that, in a lot of these countries, it is as simple as simply giving them loans but making sure that we are profiting off of this development and not wasting money. Yeah. I think that's important, that's a good point. Mutual, benefit.
1: That's mutual the, that's, benefit, I think but, that's, that's, that's one thing but, I really want to emphasize when we're talking about what, yeah. the, what the liberal order is and yeah. why it should be preserved. I think mutual benefit is a key word. Like I had said, I think zero-sum gains are the norm, mm-hmm. but that does not have, to be, right. have certain, to be the case. There are certain arrangements that can be created where there is mutual benefit. Okay, yeah, but, so, but that's one aspect
0: of it. So like I said, you have to bring in a stability to these countries. And a lot of Latin American countries and a lot of African countries In a lot of Middle Eastern countries uh, there's just too much corruption in the society there's too much crime there's too much uh, poverty there's too much uh, people who don't want to do the right thing you know there's just a lot of crime there's a lot of it's dangerous it's dangerous and how are you gonna open up a market if your customers are gonna come in and steal everything and and you have the mob coming in and saying hey I got to get a cut you know, you have to establish this, the, uh, some stability in these societies. When I say develop the, 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 these countries, it's a lot more than just an economic package. Yeah. It has to be a cooperation in setting the political institutions and setting up health institutions, educational institutions. I think a lot of the research institutions, uh, innovation districts, I think a lot of these things you need to do. And I think the biggest way to do that is you, you partner with urban planners and you create cities or you uh, further develop the cities that are already in these countries. You work with with the cities, and once you work with the cities, you clean the cities up, You build, uh, if they have old structures, you you knock those out and you build new structures, new cleaner structures. You pave the streets. You put trees up. You put signs up. You put good lighting. You change the environment. I think that's something that we can do because that's just simple as as, as a hammer and a nail. That's something you build. I think that we built our nation. We can build that. So that's one of the things. It's not just, and that ties into economics, but it's what you do with those economics. It's not simply loans. It's more of a direct... Uh, uh, posturing and getting in there and actually doing these things. And not only that, but there's a lot of ways that you can develop these words. And once you do that, then they're going to feel a sense of debt to the United States for having done that and then that ties into well, number well, that ties into number two, where they're going to want to be our allies because we've done so much for that, them. That, that's why people yeah. want to be that people love the French because of what the French did for us to help us develop our economy with our loans when we first started. People love the French. but, that, that's,
1: but that's not universally the case and I, and I think that we are ta- I, I agree but more than a lot, a lot what you're saying, but I definitely think there's needs some there's some modifications that need to be done okay uh, and, and the reason why I say that is because that is exactly what we did with China that what happens when you have countries that are... And it worked! Look, look, no, 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 look no. at their economy! But look how hostile they are towards the United States. Look at what they're doing to their neighbors. The Philippines, Vietnam, Japan, South Korea, you know. So Here's what I'm going to say. Okay. Is that it's not always a good idea to just make a country stronger. Um, so there's a few things that we need to do. First of all, I definitely think we need to protect our intellectual property. You know, I get innovation in the sense of like giving them water purification and agricultural technology and things that they need to survive. But I think if we're going to turn over advanced electronics, expect that country to come and want to kill us someday 30 mm-hmm. years down the road. Right. Um, the other thing is we definitely need, we need to think about a threshold for where do we consider a country not developing anymore? Because the problem right now, there's a mismatch between the model that we use to assess a developing country and how we help a developing country. So developing country right now is defined based on GDP per capita, mm-hmm. but the way we help it is based on competitiveness of industries. So we give them one-sided tariffs to help them develop. Right. The problem is that China, they have strong and intact industries that could hold their own against the full force of international competition. And yet, because of low GDP per capita, they're able to remain a developing country and exploit yeah. the rest of the world economically and basically yeah. be an imperialist nation. And that what I think is really important is that we are, we're thinking about how we're developing these countries and that we don't want to develop challengers. We don't yes. want to develop. You know, so, that's we, want to protect our international, um, we want to protect our intellectual property. We want to um, make sure that we sort of establish a threshold. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also want to make sure we're, we're careful of what areas we're, we're helping them in. You know, that, that you know, don't, don't help them. Well, the mill- reason why no, I like you have crap. one,
0: you have one example, which is very valid, which is China, which we help be, that we help them become what they are today. And then now they're trying to you know, disrupt our liberal order, disrupt our economic trade, and eventually disrupt our security. That's very true and valid, and I, I agree and I accept and I will implement or, you know, I, I would say that we do need to be careful in how we develop and be careful for uh, certain uh, down-the-road uh, security problems that could arise. But when you do this, more often than not, you see demonstratively that you have allies and, like, and, and one of the most important you th- you things you need from an ally is for that ally to be strong. If you're going to counteract yes. powers that you don't care about, you need strong allies. It doesn't matter if you have weak allies, you're never going to get anything done. That's and actually, so that's actually we, one of the
1: reasons we, why the Soviet Union bro- lost yeah. the Cold War. Let me finish this
0: point real quick, Preston. So like I said, you bring up China, I can bring up Germany. I can bring up South Korea, and I can bring up Japan. So you look at these areas and what they've been able to do, and how strong are they allied to the United States? Because we had a more active role it wasn't with China, it was just trade facilitation with these they did more of the things that i 'm talking about going in and rebuilding the institutions, rebuilding the streets, rebuilding the uh, you know we're, we're just we 're there on the ground level it 's not just simply a market transfer, you know what I mean so I think that you, you do see both sides of the of the equation yeah I think it 's important for anybody who who's listening to this who actually is in a position to affect policy they need to be aware of both sides and how to do the things that created one of them over the or the positive side that we're talking about versus the negative So I just want to wrap that up and say, you know, those are my those are my three things that I think that we could be doing better today: is developing the world, is to get rid of ISIS, and to um, and to procure more allies in the world. And with that, we just want to we we, I think we've covered the United States, what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong, and we even came up with some solutions. So now let's go ahead and look abroad. And when you look at the world and and the major actors: Europe, China, Russia. What do you see are the biggest challenges to this Western liberal order? Who chal- Who who poses the biggest threat and challenge, and why?
1: So I I, I would say, I would say is this um, that 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 the biggest challenge I definitely see. Are, are you referring to like in terms of a country or anything? Uh, just in 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 terms of to the Western liberal order. Okay. Uh, well what I was gonna say is like because from, from a global perspective. I feel like the, I- the issue that's a lot of times the biggest challenge is when you have a reduction in incentives to cooperate. Mm-hmm. That, you know, one of the reasons why I'm so concerned about mercantilists, oh, yeah, you know, all right, I'll go ahead and bring up China again. I love talking about China. Can you but, define for us, real quick, what is a revisionist power, Preston? So, a, a revisionist power is essentially a power that wants to transform the way the world is ordered, mm-hmm. that you have the status quo and that you might have certain countries that you want to change within the status quo. A revisionist power is somebody who wants to burn down the status quo and rebuild something new. Okay. Um, but what I was going to say is that, that I think lack of incentives to cooperate oftentimes are, the, the, I think, the biggest obstacle. Because what happens, one of the reasons why I mention China and mercantilism a lot is because when you're dealing with a country who's a revisionist power in terms of economics, I think it's important that we don't get too carefully focused on the size of their economy because obviously, and and I'm mentioning this because of the global perspective we're talking about now, that I think the size of the economy is a worry from an American perspective. We don't want our enemy being wealthier than us. But I think if we're talking about it from a global perspective, there's something a lot more important, and that is avoiding self-sufficient states. Um, because basically what happens is that when you have a self sufficient state it really limits the ability or the incentive rather uh, for them to cooperate because think about it that you know if that 's the whole point of free trade as a mechanism for achieving peace that if i Rely on you for coal and you rely on me for steel. We're not going to go to war because we realize that we'll be shooting ourselves in the foot if we do. Okay. But if I control coal and oil and steel and semiconductor and jet engines right. um, and, and you know, a lot of like, rocket technology, oil exploration technology, pretty much everything, everything I need, need, then I don't really have that much of an incentive. And a war stimulates the economy because an exporting country is susceptible to uh, lack of demand, but that could easily be stimulated by starting a new conflict. Um, and and that's the thing that I think is important that we make sure that we're maintaining interdependence between countries that you know that 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 we're not allowing countries to just become so independent of the international system that they don't have to worry about the economic repercussions of their actions
0: okay so that's in general that's that's a broad that is a, a, a something that applies to any country yes. that, that's not the United States. And I, I
1: mentioned China because so, they're doing it right now, but theoretically, any country well, could let's, do let's this. Let's go
0: with that then, because obviously, you know, the big, the big dragon in the room is China. Yeah. So we have to talk about, you know, because they have 1.3 billion people, because they're projected to overtake us in our GDP by 2030. And with more economy, they can build a bigger military, which, which, would, which would eventually, like you said, with its economic influences, allow them to have allies. And then they can then present not only a formidable uh, challenge to us and our leadership, but they might overtake us. So I think that you know we should go ahead and look into this Chinese uh, issue. Are there you know? And, and I'm not saying going in here and saying they're the enemy. We need to start a war. No, it's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that we need to assess the situation that is going on with China and how they and how their influence. Uh, affects the world liberal order. So what are some of the things that China is doing that you see that are challenging the liberal order right now?
1: Well, what I would say, it actually has to do with their trade strategy. Um, because I would, I would be willing to assert, I would say that the single greatest threat to the world order, besides the West being complacent and screwing up all the time, because we already covered that, um, if we're talking about a country and their direct actions, is China. And, and the reason why, because you mentioned their military, but I'm not even that concerned about that. Mm-hmm. The reason why China is so much more dangerous, I believe, than any other country, because they are the only country on the face of the earth that has figured out how to take the framework for peace and weaponize because what I was mentioning about interconnectedness, like when you look at Russia, right, that that's actually something that's helped us check Russia. That when they were invading the Crimea, that, they were a, that, that the sanctions really hit their economy right. hard. It was punishment. Even the United States, we rely so heavily on our allies that even though we're the biggest, the biggest power around, we rely so heavily on our allies that if we do something that makes us into a pariah, our ability to carry that out are limited, yes. is limited. rather. But but China, essentially what they've been able to do is take advantage of the free market without entering the free market. And what they do is that so they know that other countries can't put tariffs on them. What they do is that they consolidate control of industries under the government. They have big state-owned monopolies. They prevent other countries from investing um, in 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 their country enough to secure the controlling interest of various companies or to secure market share beyond a certain threshold. Uh, and that they really prevent like China, they really prevent themselves from being exposed to any kind of risk. Mm-hmm. And they seal off their internal economy from competition. And then they use the international system. To draw in revenue and you know and provide investment opportunities, so that they can use it inv- uh, to advance their own interests. So they're able to become more economically powerful without having to expose themselves to any competition or any interdependence. That you know that they have a lot more to gain and less to lose essentially. And that's why I think it's so much more dangerous. Is anything they're doing
0: is it illegal, Preston, or are they just figuring out the best way to do things? And it's our fault because we're not as smart as they are. Are they doing anything illegal? I would that's illegal say. Or, I would say. It's,
1: so I would say. That in terms of illegality, I, I, it depends if you're talking about codified international law or norms. Because if you're talking about codified international law, it's definitely us just being stupid. The United States never should have let them join the World Trade Organization as a developing country. But they are doing something illegal when you look at it from a norms perspective. And what it is, they're violating the norm of reciprocity. Right, right. That the whole, like, one of the big things <clears throat> when it comes to international law that makes it work, and the absence of which could destroy the inter- liberal international system. Is reciprocity. This idea that that no country, yeah, some countries might be more powerful than others, you have those political dynamics, but from a legal perspective, when you're looking at what is general, what is acceptable behavior and what is not, that there is no country that is so special that it's above the rules. There's no, and that if they violate those rules, other countries can violate it with them. You know, I put tariffs on you, then you can put tariffs on me. Reciprocity, this idea that we all have to follow the same standards. What's happened with China, there is no reciprocity. China does all these things economically that no other country can get away with. And you know it, it, it turns it just back into that realist power struggle, that, that, you know, that, that, that zero-sum economic gain uh, you know, that, that's reminiscent of the colonial period. Where we had those mercantilist powers, and I think that you know, Maintaining reciprocity and maintaining economic interdependence and promoting it, because right now we don't have either of those things with China, promoting it is, is very important for the survival of the international order. That way countries don't see opportunity in, in being hostile towards other countries, especially when it comes to economic affairs.
0: Yeah, China is basically that guy who you play basketball with, who after the game goes on, he just magically has more points than he really has. He's just yeah. giving himself points, like he really scored five and he's like, dude, what do you mean? It's like 12 to 10, it's 12 to 10, you know what I mean? So he just cheats, he, he, he doesn't play by the rules of the game and when you do that, that guy who you're playing basketball with, he may beat you in that game because of those artificial points that he got just exactly. because he's going to bend the rules. Yeah. So I think that that's, that, that that's one of the most dangerous things. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. From an economic perspective, uh, China is very dangerous but I just want to go, and, and and I think that um, Russia is, in fact, the most dangerous to us. Uh, really? And, and obviously you can have both of those, but because to me it Well, obviously down, they're both threats. Yeah, they're but both but threats, we're, we're and they're both allies. They're both super allies, but just for the sake of discussion here. Yeah, I of course, wanna, of course. I just want to I welcome say, dissenting views. Yeah, it's good I just want to say, you know, and that uh, that Russia is, in fact, the most dangerous because Russia they are an aggressive power, they are a power that is trying to expand their sphere of influence, and they are a military power. And when you have those three things, that means that you constantly have Vladimir Putin right now checking his military operations and checking the internal political state of of neighboring countries, and he's waiting for the perfect time to invade, or the perfect time to set up a, a, uh, a incognito campaign to inflict internal revolt and get other countries to subscribe to the, to the Russian view and the Russian order and when you do that because they have the military capacity to once they have these allies and once they have the sphere of influence then, then they're growing. They're growing and, they're, and they, they will expand from there and so you can see them go from Lithuania to Poland to perhaps God forbid if, if, if they cooperated with Germany so much they could even have Germany as an ally. I see Russia as a, they're an alternative power. They brand themselves as an alternative power to the West. They say, look, either you can subscribe to the Western liberal order or you can subscribe to us where we will solve for the things that they don't do right. One of of their biggest complaints is territorial sovereignty. You know, even though obviously what they did in Crimea is, is huge in the face of that. I'm right, that it's but, not
1: Ukraine; that it's my Ukraine.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's 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 my Ukraine. It, that's cream. that's what Putin was saying. Yeah. You know? Why are we putting so, up with them?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: So so basically, you have the Russians who are willing to act, enforce, and they're and they're an expanding power. And when they're expanding, you know, that's 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 dangerous in a different sense because it's a short term thing. They're not necessarily. Like China, I see it more as a long-term game. When you talk about China dominating the liberal order, it's 2030. There's no estimates that say in, in the next five years everything is going to be flipped upside down. With Russia, that could very well happen. They just need the right state, the right actor, or the right situation and they're not hesitated, they're not hesitant to act and meet us with military force which they can match us in very many in, in, in a lot of anti-missile capacity or in fighter capacity or in nuclear capacity in places where they actually beat us yeah. and I think when it when we're talking about security here I think that's that's the most important thing because China really doesn't have a, a an immediate threat to our security it's a long-term threat whereas Russia can immediately you know uh challenge us if they want to if they feel like they have the confidence and they have the power to do so but just real quick on, your, on your, your China's economic power, I just want to point out one thing President, mm. and that is a lot of people forget, but when I talk about the power of allies, let me bring up the EU, okay? Because a lot of times in this discussion, it's the United States, it's the EU, and it's China, and I mean it's the United States, China, and Russia, and the EU doesn't really get their fair, uh, their fair time. So let me just say that, in fact, if you look at the EU, their economy is bigger than the United States. So when you're talking about China and their growing economic power, they might take overtake the United States, but it would be very marginally. But if you combine the economic power of the United States and the EU, it it almost doubles what China would have even in 2030. So I just want to say that even in their economic powerhouse, even if they're an economic powerhouse, we still can double the resources that they would be able to produce at least economically for at least until 2050. So that's why you know I just want to you know and and our economic power. Combined with EU is something that the Chinese still can't even match. They still can't even dream to, to, to well, match. Well,
1: heck, that's that's because so totally, I, I, I I do agree with that, because I had actually written a, an article that was kind of along the same lines. It was about NAFTA. Yes, NAFTA. I had described NAFTA as, in my words, the economic NATO. Yeah. And, and the reason why was because that it really thwarts China's mercantilist and monopolistic tendencies, because as we have access to that comparative advantage across the territory of Canada and Mexico, and there's this diversification of supply chains, goods which yeah. the United States had a part in making are more competitive. And I, and I agree with you in that sense that the EU, um, and it, like, everything's relative, and I, and I definitely think that, you know, the, the reason why I see China's biggest threat is because of a, other, I'm looking at it like as a holistic package, but... I will give you this, because you know, I, I believe that in a lot of ways economic strength is a prerequisite to military strength, and that self sufficiency is more dangerous than sheer size to the liberal order um, when it comes to the economy. But if you're talking militarily, I would agree with you, but for different reasons. I'm going to offer a concurring opinion uh, to a certain extent. Not that I don't accept what you said, because I do, um, but, but just because of that, I want to add some diversity of views to the conversation. Right. I think it has to do with the fact Russia's militarily, vis 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 China, their biggest strength is also their biggest weakness. It sounds bizarre to say, but it's true. And it has to do with the relationship between symmetrical versus asymmetrical warfare capabilities. Um, so, so basically, asymmetrical capabilities are when you challenge someone in a way that's unconventional. So think about it like this if, if I had a fighter jet, you know, right? Where we're going to do like a mind game drone I had a fighter jet, and, and you, you will, let's say that you're a hostile country, we hate each other. Okay. You know, where we want to kill each other. We want to like kill it, each other. I like this. Um, well,. You could do one of two things. You could respond symmetrically. You could be like, "All right, you know, this motherfucker over here has I need got a fighter jet. I need, I need a bigger, better bigger, fighter faster, jet, faster, stronger, exactly. more maneuverable." Or, or you could say, "Well, I'm going to keep my fighter jets, but I'm going to equip them with a new missile and a new radar system that can track it. That's, that can see stealth planes. Mm-hmm. Like let's assume that mine is stealth. Like that's my big advantage, right? I got the stealth plane. and You're like, dang, I, I don't, yeah. know, I can't see it. I, I don't have it. You know, it. you can't detect it. You, you know, it goes in your airspace and it's basically invisible." Um, where you create a missile and a radar system and you shoot it down, it's asymmetrical. Now the reason why I bring this up is because China, one of the ways that they've been able to achieve so much military capability vis-a-vis the United States is because they studied American weaknesses and they've developed Asymmetrical ways of countering because asymmetrical tactics are much cheaper. It's cheaper to build a missile than it is to build a new plane or a carrier. Um, like China's carrier killer missile, for instance, that carriers are really big for America's naval strategy. They can sink our carriers, you know, they can win a conventional war essentially. Um, shooting down satellites, that's another big thing. That China really emphasized the asymmetrical capabilities, but what you gain in efficiency, you sacrifice flexibility. Mm-hmm. Because while your fighters with these cool new missiles might be able to shoot down mine, that you might be able to beat me in a war because of that that still does not replace the advantage of having a stealth fighter jet with state-of-the-art capability. You want to go invade another country, you want to actually occupy airspace, you want to maintain aerial dominance even after the fight is over, you know, that kind of thing. You want to fight an enemy that maybe have a different strategy than I do, that maybe they yeah. don't approach war the same way. You would want to have your own kick-ass fighter jet like I do. You would want to have that symmetrical threat because it allows, allows you more flexibility. Russia's military is much more conventional. They they arrange it in a way that's very similar to the United States, and while that does hurt their efficiency, because they're fighting in ways that are more expensive compared to China, they're also fighting in ways that allow them to tackle a broader variety of threats and adapt to the environment. Yeah,
0: and when you talk about this asymmetrical warfare, you know, like, because I'm just I'm over here advocating for the that the Russia is a bigger threat to the global. Uh, but I think if you look at the military, military
1: aspects specifically, you're right.
0: Yeah, uh, but yeah, so you sort of elaborated on, on the aspects that make them dangerous, and, yeah. those, and those are all true, and those, I think, add to this argument here, and I think it's important for the listeners to understand. Uh, but China has a lot of these, lot of these components, we can get into that too as yeah. well if you want. But I just want to say here that you know, uh, Russia has demonstrated, and the reason why I'm yeah. most afraid of them is because they're interventionists. They're interventionists. And they're afraid, they're not afraid to do what China's afraid to do, is it? Yeah, so uh, basically if you look at uh, Syria, a situation where Russia comes in and basically, you know, uh, they're not afraid to intervene into another country when, when they realize that if they gamble on this, they can get all the chips. China's, China's not intervening anywhere militarily. They've, they haven't done that in the past 50 years uh, you know unless they're trying to ex- extend their borders in India but that's not something they do Russia has invaded in Syria Russia has taken control of the Ukraine And not only are they uh, not afraid to intervene in physical places but when it comes to like things like hacking and like infiltrating you know um you know like uh, political systems in other countries they're not afraid to do that they're the biggest problem right now in hacking they're able to hack you know countries in the EU they're able to destabilize the EU with uh, it, with internal problems um, like fake news and and these campaigns that they're doing they have their you know spies or whatever so they're more active in disrupting our internal problems and they're more active in, uh, in in intervening in physical problems. And for those reasons, because I see Russia as more aggressive, uh, you know, I see China as more pragmatic. And I think China will hesitate to do something that they know will destabilize their own country. And, and, and it's easier to sort of, uh, like you said, Preston, I feel like if you were... Uh, one of the main policy chiefs you would implement a bunch of policies and that would fix the problem that we have with China because it's very cut and dry Mm. you know just fix the economic situation with with Russia it's a little bit different because if there's no, you know, uh, sanctions is one tool, but it's not going to solve them from using their military power and for using their asymmetrical powers. And for those reasons, I see Russia as a huge threat. But both of them are a threat. Not only are both of them a threat, but they're both
1: in love with each other. They're married with each other. They go to bed with each other. Well, well, you know? one, well the, my response So that is our biggest. Yeah. I that I think Russia is the biggest threat when you are looking at it from a Western... Did you finish that? From, yeah, I did. Oh, okay. From, from, a, from a, a Western-centric perspective. And I think that's how... What, one of the reasons why China is so much more dangerous in my eyes is because we really misunderstand them. That that China's approach to war is is very different. They, they they don't even view war as strictly a military endeavor. In Chinese doctrine there really is not that much of a distinction between economic and military strategy, by and large. They they, they, they see it as a clash of civilizations in a lot of ways, that the idea is to subdue the other civilization, but doing it in a way where they don't realize that's what's happening, and, I, and I, I I would be wary to confuse military inactivity mm-hmm. with them not being a threat, Okay. because w- w- one observation, and, and, and you might disagree with this, and that's fine, and if you do, feel free to bring it up, um, you know, because it's, it's good to have some of that back and forth, but what, the, what I believe and what the Chinese believe is that economic strength is a prerequisite to military strength, that you have to be able to fund Granite. your military, Granite. and the thing is that China, in their in their doctrine, like when you read like for un- unrestricted warfare, for instance, um, it, it, that they believe that you don't want to start being too revisionist or too aggressive when your economy is still smaller than the other country. As a matter of fact, a lot of Chinese scholars attribute that to one of the reasons, uh, as one of the reasons why the Soviet Union lost the Cold War. They said that the, the Soviet Union was too aggressive, that they militarized too much. And that they were challenging the United States before they had the money and the resources to do so. Mm-hmm. And that China basically believes that, that – it's, you know, it's like what Sun Tzu said, all warfare is based on deception. China wants to appear weak. That way they're not perceived as a threat. And they want to gain power in other ways. And then once they feel comfortable, once they feel like that a military conflict would be to their advantage – once they have more resources in another country, once they have a bigger economy, a more self-sufficient economy, that's when they'll be more open to to starting conflict. Um, so, so you're absolutely right about Russia, and I think that if you're if you're going to follow a Western centric ideological framework, um, which you can because there's arguments for that, you know, because like Western civilization has dominated for the past five hundred years. You know, if you're going to follow a Western centric mindset that projects Western values onto other countries and that assumes war is only military then yes Russia is a bigger threat but if you're going if you look at things from the perspective of understanding how different cultures and countries look at war and, and when you understand that especially in this nuclear era where full-scale military conflict would be annihilating to both countries that there's that countries are seeking to use non-military means to advance their military objectives that I, I definitely think that that China is still the, the biggest threat because of that. And and even if you don't even if you still don't believe me, I think it's still important that we don't underestimate China. Like right. you know, if it let's just say hypothetical scenario, if it turns out you're right and that Russia really is the biggest threat, I would say that China is the closest second in yeah. the history of mankind. That they're like yeah. so close to being equal, very close second, minute distance between the two, just because of the fact that they are able to do the China is able to because Russia, we're ready. Russia we're we're Thinking that they're going to do something yeah. all the time, you know. Whereas China, they're going to catch catching us off guard. They're good at making us think they're going to be peaceful, yeah. when in reality they have religious yeah. ambitions.
0: Yeah, very hard to figure out. Um, so yeah, Preston. So I think we covered the main uh, the main point over here. So let's go into overtime, man. Was there really anything that you wanted to talk about that we haven't covered that uh, fits into this whole global order type thing? And specifically, can you try if you can? I know this is tough, man, is, I'm throwing a lot on your plate, but to make it, in, let's end on an optimistic note. Let's give the readers, the viewers, you know, you probably, you know, your average person out there who's listened to this and they're like, oh man, are you kidding me? Russia and China, what are we going to do? We, we can't do anything. We've got isolationist policies at home. You know, we've got Russia, China ever-growing in economic might. Well, as influence. we have Russia and their military uh, superiorities in certain places. Is there any good news? Is there any positivity to this? Is there anything that you can think of that, that you know, will help somebody sleep at night and not have to worry so much that everything's going to go to shit in the next 10, 20 years? Because we're all young. And one of the important things I want to stress to anybody who's listening to this, this is important. We're talking about this because this is the world that we are going to grow up in. The, right now, this liberal order has been established for 70-plus years. I want to say 90 years. Or maybe 80 years. 80 years. I take that back. 80 years. But we're at a crossroads in history with China and Russia and the resurgence of Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union that things are going to change if we don't do anything. If we don't do anything, things are going to change. So it's important for the average person to understand what's going going on. You have to go beyond simply looking at posts on Facebook and hitting like and share. You have to actually spend the time uh, diving into the different policies of these countries and what they believe in their values and their uh, attitudes and beliefs and how, that, how, how they contradict ours or how they are inimical to ours and also how they uh, coincide with ours. Because I think, Preston, personally, personally, that if the best thing that we can do is look for a peaceful way forward, a peaceful coexistence where we can preserve this order and we can give Russia and China what they want to just a certain extent that where we still remain superior but that they're also satisfied with what they have Mm -hmm. and so I think that you know that brings up the subject we have to sort of in order to do that I mean the the, the biggest thing we haven't even talked about is all this because America is the strongest power in this whole equation we're stronger than China and Russia today Uh, because we have the military power that's better than Russia's and we have the economy that as of right now is stronger than China's and we have the allies that they don't have so one of the things that's important that we forgot that I I would like to get your thoughts on is when it comes to the average American out there the average American they don't realize that they have so much power to determine this because they determine who's their local officials, their state officials their their national officials and all that affects our Policy and our policy affects the world order. So you know, right now, person, can you talk to the American person, heart to heart, and tell them, you know, what should they know about this going forward? What should they look out for? Well, I, yeah. What should they do? I,
1: I want to sort of answer both actually you brought up two things. You brought up that, and beforehand, you brought up being optimistic. The first, the first thing I want to say, kind of as a word of encouragement, is that, you know, like I, I agree with with Jordan that it's definitely, you know, it's easy to get depressed about a lot of this stuff. But what we have to realize. Is that we have all the tools that we need to solve these problems now, and it might not seem like it, but with China, we could deal with it with that through renegotiating our trade deal and changing some of our trade policies. You know, getting more hardline with some of the economic stuff. You know, with Russia, we have the tools because you know we're the predominant military power still. That we, we there's a lot of room for negotiations and diplomacy with Russia. That. Um, you know, that, that, that we, we, we have a lot of leverage over them in, in, in a lot of ways that, that, can, that can be used to our advantage. Um, so that we're definitely capable of tackling these things. That you know, this isn't about what we can and can't do, it's what we should and shouldn't do. And what it is, I think the problem that people get in this mindset these problems can't be solved. It's like, no, they can be solved. You know, that, that there are policy changes that can take place right now that would go a long way in addressing a lot of these things. The, the next thing is i would say is that you know to the average american person mm-hmm. like if you're looking at this you know and, and you know maybe you're not a foreign policy guru maybe you're hearing about some of this stuff for the first time you just decided that the wisdom factory podcast sounded interesting and you're listening yeah, to it and hopefully it, and you've been you know it was one hour and whatever 10, ten minutes, minutes start, and you're just like what yeah. the hell are we talking about you know i would say <laughs> you want to educate yourself as much as possible Get involved in it. A lot of times, because you go to other countries, people know about foreign policy. That's true. That's so true. You go That's to so Europe. True. You go to China. You go to Russia. You go to Japan. You go to South Korea. You go to Australia. Yeah, even certain African countries. You know, like, so obviously the less developed ones, maybe not, but the ones that are more developed, People know about foreign policy. People have their ideas as to how their country should be interacting with the rest of the world. They have their doctrines. People discuss realism, liberalism, conservative internationalism, constructivism. United States, we don't have that. People are so busy focusing. Inward. Wake up, people! You no, know, people are you no know, that that and that there's it's a lack of interest that people don't even want to take the time to get an idea of what's going on and that. The thing is the reason why it's important is i'm not trying to lecture people and be like oh you know you you know you're not you're not learning it's like no no this stuff affects you we are a globalist power and we live in a globalized society and that this liberal world order is something that has maintained our standard of living it's maintained our security and has benefited both ourselves and people in other countries and that if we lose sight of the challenges facing it and we fail to solve them, we fail to to tackle these in a way that's effective and that's pragmatic, we're all gonna suffer as a result of it. And that is not the type of future I want to live in. The future I want to live in is one where even if it has to be adjusted to stay alive, even if we have to make some changes, that the liberal order by and large is preserved you know i want to live in a society where where not only does the united states remain strong and remain the dominant country but also that 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 relations between countries can be peaceful and that we can choose cooperation more often than conflict uh, but i think that if we're if we don't pay attention to these issues and we're not willing to educate ourselves about them and yeah. develop the necessary strategies and policies to deal with these challenges if we're not willing to do that, I'm not sure how this is ever gonna happen. But I think that it can, like I said in that first part, it can happen now. We have the capability, this is not outside of our reach. And that, you know, pick up a book, you know, go, go to the library, go out, you know, look, read, read some news sources outside, just the mainstream cable news that this knowledge is out there and these problems affect you and you can be part of the solution because you have ideas in your head whether you realize it or not that are going to be incredibly helpful Mm -hmm. and I think you know if everybody contributes to the conversation we have that free marketplace of ideas that's how we're going to be able to develop the best solutions. Yeah and
0: uh, that was very well said Preston and I just want to add here before we close out another thing that you know if I want to address somebody that what we have to do is we have to focus on our society as well this isn't just about looking abroad there's a huge focus that we need in our society and the biggest thing that you can do is that you can just achieve the maximum amount of maximize your potential so become that like follow your dreams and become who you always thought you should be and don't take no for an answer and and pursue your dreams because when you succeed America succeeds and when America succeeds our economy succeeds and when our economy succeeds our de- our military succeeds because we're able to use that economic mind like we've discussed and put that into the military and when all those things succeed and the society is healthy and beautiful then the allies see our society and they see it as a model for them to follow and that, that gets us to allies and that, that directly influences the things that we talked about so I think it's important for the average person out there to just see that right now is the time that you have to uh, to awaken that sense of duty to your country that you have to be you're an American and you should be proud to be an American and you should do for your country uh, which leads the world and protects the world and leads this world liberal right order that's you you're an American so what you should be doing the best to maximize your potential and you know we need doctors we need you know lawyers we need researchers uh, you know innovators entrepreneurs business people Uh, you know, workers, everyday workers, but just, you know, don't uh, become lazy and don't become complacent with your station in life. Go out there and seek the opportunities because they're out there. Go find mentors, go find resources, uh, go find the different books, get involved, organize, you know what I mean? Just sort of maximize yourself so that you are uh, contributing to your own success which contributes to the success of this country and i think that that's that's the whole that's the best part of this thing is that you take care of your business then the united states can take care of its business and there will be peace in the world and there will be prosperity in the world and we can all live happy and sing kumbaya and drink on the weekends and go continue to have our barbecues and go on boat parties right go on boat parties you know what i mean because you know because there's peace around and we don't we're not in conflict in order to preserve that, that's why it's important for all of us to do what we're doing. And I think this is a good step. If you've made it this far, then you're the type of person that, we, that, we, that we're looking for, or we, that we really, what's the right word, but like that we, um, we tip our hats off to you. Because if you made it this far, that means you care. And that's the first step, is, to just, is, is just caring. With that, I want to say that thank you for listening. Uh, you know, to to me and Preston talk about you know whatever it is. I hope we make yeah, sense. Foreign policy, and foreign policy, all this, all this oh, complicated stuff. Complicated and that, stuff. You no, know,
1: my 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 last words, you know, is that in the end of the day, we're all in this together, um, and that you know it's, it's important all that we, develop, that we develop these perspectives and these ideas. Um, you know that the, 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 the one of the slogans of the Wisdom Factory is the pursuit of knowledge for the betterment of mankind, and that we always need to be looking towards that as a North Star. And, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, kind of going back to, you know, perspective from our country that, you know, I, I think the United States, when all said and done, is the greatest country in the world, yep. you know, that we, we, we've we been able to overcome challenges before and we can do it again. And i say, God bless America and long live the Republic.
0: All right, pressing on that. Let's end. Let's, let's get a hands in. USA on three. You know, like, like this. USA on three. One, two, three. USA! USA.